over the course of our lives, we have a tendency, as unfortunate as it is, to collect relationships that are difficult, that are hard. And and I don't mean to speak that in in just a callous kind of way or or sweep that under the rug or or think of that as insignificant or, or in any way minimize any of the relationships of your past. There are significant issues in our past that often we have to overcome. And, and for some of you in this, in this service, you, you may not have those experiences. By the grace of God, you might have been raised in a, maybe a godly home or maybe just a home of parents who really cared about you and loved you and, and everything was fantastic. Or you might have been raised in an, an abusive home, a home that was anything but Christian. That, that you're here in this worship service by nothing else than the grace of God to you. That there is nothing in your past that would ever have led you to this point, and yet, for whatever reason, God has seen fit to draw you in. And, and sometimes you've got to be honest with yourself that, that there is a... a, a a tinge in there every once in a while when you hear about the goodness and grace and majesty of a loving Father, there's a, a, a bit in you that is slightly bitter still. Many of us, over time, because of these relationships that we've collected over time, it may be a, a spouse even, it may be a friend, a neighbor, another family member, but for whatever reason, we, we have this bitterness that's brought about because of anger and resentment over this relationship that is somewhere in our past, our present, maybe our current circumstances that we're in. The question then comes to us as people who are supposed to be following Christ, as disciples of Christ, how do we move past that? You hear Sunday after Sunday, you know deep down, look, I, I've got to be able to forgive this person. But it's so difficult. How do I do it? So then the question comes, as you hear of the forgiveness that you must give to this person through Christ, am I just supposed to take it for the rest of my life? Am I just the one that's taken advantage of constantly? Am I just the one that always gets the short end of the stick? Is that who I'm just destined to be for the rest of my life as a Christian? Is that what it means? How is it that we move past bitterness in our lives? Well, in our chapter this morning, as we look at what David's going through here, we're going to see that his path to the throne has been anything but easy. Have you noticed that? God has anointed him as king actually quite a long time ago for us, many, many chapters ago. And yet, ever since the beginning, he has had anything but an easy go of it. He's the youngest of eight brothers. Now, don't let that just fly by you. That's hard, being the youngest, all right? I mean, I speak from experience, you know? His brothers look at him with a little bit of resentment. Every one of them might have been in line to the king, to the throne. Even Samuel himself thought that each one might be the next king. And, and no, 
They didn't pass muster, and so David, their youngest brother, as we talked about last week, carrying the Pokemon lunchbox into the anointing ceremony there, is anointed king. And what happens? But the next chapter, he shows up on the battlefield to fight Goliath, or he's out there, and he's asking, who's going to go fight this giant? And who else but his oldest brother turns around and says, I know what evil is in your heart. That's what it's like to be the youngest. All right? Again, I speak from experience. It's hard being the youngest. Not only that, but after he is anointed king, the Spirit comes upon him, and it gives him that, um, whatever you want to call it, that, that bravery to go fight for God's people and to stand up for the kingdom. And at the same time, the man who is currently on the throne, Saul, the Spirit leaves him and an evil spirit comes to torment him. And so what should happen but that the heir apparent, the one who has been anointed, is brought in to play the liar while Saul soaks in his bubble bath. All right? David is, is Kenny G. All right? He's been brought in to soothe and to relax Saul. But naturally what happens when Saul looks at David and he sees all the mighty conquests, he flies off into this tyrannical rage and seeks to pin him to the wall on multiple occasions literally drive a spear right through him and David narrowly escapes well now we're at the point where David is on the run from Saul has been for some time and in the previous chapter that we saw last week Saul went into a cave to use the bathroom and it happened to be the cave where David is hiding out and back in dark corners. And all of his men say, now is the time the Lord has given him into your hand. And what does David do? He cuts off a corner of his robe. And what happens to him as soon as he does that, his heart is crushed within him. It means the spirit moved in and convicted him. And he said, I shouldn't reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so in spite of Saul going after David so many times, David withholds his anger and doesn't retaliate and instead seeks to preserve Saul's life. Can you imagine the gall? I'm sure his men are looking at him going, what on earth are you thinking? You had, you had Saul dead to rights and you could have taken it and you didn't. And what impeded him? What restrained him? But the Lord working in David's heart. Well, in the passage this morning, David is going to be forestalled yet again. And we're going to see that happen in this text. And not only that, but next week it's going to happen again. So these three chapters, 24, 25, and 26, are all set up to show you the restraint that the Lord is bringing to the hand of His anointed King. Now, if you look at verse 1, it immediately starts out, Now Samuel died. And probably what you have in your text, especially if you've got the ESV, is you've got the first part of verse 1 about Samuel's death set apart, maybe, separated by a heading from the rest of verse 1 and the rest of the passage. And if you have an ESV, you might have a heading, the death of Samuel, first part of verse 1, and then the rest of verse 1, David and Abigail, and then the rest of the chapter. I think that's not helpful 
That's not put there by the biblical author. That's put there by somebody else you know, that's translating this into English. I think that's not helpful because I think that's meant to explain what happens next. You notice, he says in verse 1, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. The prophet Samuel functioned as something of a father figure to both David and Saul. And we're going to see this come up a little bit later on where Saul is looking for some kind of guidance in the absence of Samuel. And what does he do? But he consults a witch to try to resurrect Samuel's spirit to give him some counsel and advice because he desperately needs it. But both David and Saul see Samuel as this sort of fatherly type figure. Well, David, on the occasion of the death of Samuel, what does he do? He gets up and he moves further south and further into the wilderness. David was at En Gedi, which was a paradise of paradises. It had cliffs up at the top where he could hide out in these caves. It had green grass. It had flowing water for his livestock. It had everything he could possibly ever want. Why would he leave the wilderness of En Gedi? Well, in the last chapter, Saul now knows where David is, right? First of all. Second, in this chapter, Samuel dies. Now, with the fatherly figure out of the way, there is absolutely nothing to restrain Saul from choking David out. And he knows it. So David gets up after Saul dies, or Samuel dies, and leaves deeper south into the, and heads further into the woods. You have to understand what kind of situation David is in. David is not only on the run, but he has no land to live off of that is his own. He may or may not have some livestock along with him. But the point is, he's got tons of men that he is responsible for. And now, they're going deeper into the wilderness. They're going deeper into hiding. They're going, that means, further away from these cities. And most of the people around in the land of Judah know who David is. Don't picture cities the size of Birmingham or Dallas. Picture cities of 100. Picture cities of 50. 100 would be a big city. These are small little communities who all know each other's business, who all look after each other's property when they're on away from vacation, who all gossip about each other when they're, when they're away. So they well know who David is, who is one of his family members, of their family members being from Judah, as he's moving through this land. And you have to know that as such, David is depending on them for subsistence. He's asking them for help. Remember, he's amongst his own people. He's in the land of Judah. So he's asking them for help. And in our passage this morning, he comes upon a man by the name of Nabal, and it tells us a lot about Nabal in verses 2 and 3. Look, at, look with me there. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh 
and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So we're told several things about Nabal in, this, in these two verses. First, his name, and it is important to know, his name is Nabal. That's, that's tremendously important because Nabal is the Hebrew word for fool. I know what you're thinking. Pregnant women out there? A good possibility for a name for your son. Nabal means fool. What mother would name their son foolish one when they're born? I got nothing for you. I don't know if this was his proper name or if this was his nickname, but the point is, as the author tells us and makes perfectly clear that we should know, he lived up to his name, all right? And that's the point, that he is actually living up to his name. So first, his name means foolish. Second, he has a wife who is, it says, discerning, or literally that means insightful. She is wise. And second, she is beautiful. Put all those things together, and what do we say about Nabal? He outkicked his coverage, all right? As so many men do, I'm one of them. He outkicked his coverage, all right? And, and couldn't live up to the marriage that's there before him. His wife, very discerning, very insightful, as we see that play out. And he is a fool. Third, he is a very wealthy Calebite. You recognize that name, Caleb? You know the name Caleb? Caleb was one of the spies that was charged to go spy out the land, to look at the land when Moses was leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. And Caleb was one of two, Joshua was the other, who came back with a positive report, we can take the land, it is a beautiful land, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And now we are many generations following Caleb, who is a faithful person who believed the Lord, who trusted the Lord in spite of the other ten spies who didn't believe the Lord. He trusted the Lord, and here is his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson living off the fat of the land quite well. This has, for sure, especially as Nabal is concerned, been a land flowing with milk and honey. And so here he is living off the land, but what do we find in this passage but that he is unwilling to share with his very neighbors in spite of the fact he is benefiting from his ancestors' faith. So what does David do? He reaches out to him for help in feeding his men, and he does so for several reasons. First, he does so because Nabal is wealthy. It's what it means according to verse 2. He has 3,000 sheep. He has 1,000 goats. Second, he reaches out to Nabal because he's shearing sheep. This is actually really important because when they would go down once or twice a year to shear sheep, there would be a festival that would follow. They would have to count all their sheep. They would see how many sheep they've got to shear. And then they would be so grateful to the Lord for the amount of sheep that they've got to shear, they would take one of them to spare, they would kill it, and they would have a feast for everyone. So David goes to Nabal during the sheep shearing festival, knowing that he's going to be shearing his sheep, and he asks him to share the sheep that he shears. All right? Got me? Okay. I can't believe I did that. <laughs> Made it through. Oh, what do you know? <laughs> Third, we find out, look at verse 6 to 8. And thus you shall greet him. David's telling his men, he's preparing his men what to say. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. 
Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. So he's tremendously wealthy. He's about to kill some sheep to feed all of his men and to celebrate and have a festival. And David isn't even asking to join him at the table. He's just asking him for any scraps that he's got left over to feed not only him and his men. David also is careful to mention your shepherds were amongst us in the wilderness and all of my men watched after them so that they weren't missing any sheep or goats and they themselves were protected. This is entirely uncommon in virtually any country. That David's men who are starving and hungry wouldn't turn into outlaws and kill all of the shepherds and slay all of the sheep and take whatever it was that they wanted from these shepherds. And so David is careful to mention that to Nabal. But you notice David also comes to him in humility there at the end of verse 8. He calls him his son. He says, your son, David. Now, David's men approach Nabal and they wait for Nabal's response and we find it in verse 10. I want you to hear this in light of what David's petition was. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Listen to what he says next. Who is the son of Jesse? Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? You hear that in Nabal's tone? Is this someone who is benefiting from God's generosity of the land flowing with milk and honey like his father Caleb? Absolutely not. This is someone who has made his own living. He's paved his own way. This is wealth that I've got. Why should I give it to anyone else? But there's so much more than that. First, he makes David out to be insignificant. Who is David? David? Never heard of him. Oh, he knows David. Second, he rejects David calling himself his son. That's the son of Jesse. That's how you know he knows David. Because he knows his father. Who is the son of Jesse? Never heard of him. Third, he seems to be taking Saul's side in the division between David and Saul. You check that? There's all kinds of servants that leave their masters these days who are breaking away from their masters. And what is he saying about David? I know where you come from. You had that rift with Saul. How do I know that you're not to blame for that rift? This is appalling in his response to David. He's taking Saul's side in this division between the two. But you know what's even worse about all this? Nabal is from Judah. 
He's one of David's own kinsmen. Here David has been anointed as king over Israel who is from Judah and in every way that is going to benefit everyone from Judah. That one of our own kinsmen is going to be king over us. That is in every way going to benefit Judah. And here is Nabal taking the side of a Benjaminite in Saul over someone who is his own kinsman. It's far worse, I'm afraid, than simply a no thanks. He's rejecting David outright. And David is rightfully angered and receives it as such. And he declares war on Nabal. He's ready to suit up and go after him. And so he takes his men, most of them anyway, and heads out that direction. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants takes off, hears the altercation, takes off, and goes and tells Nabal's much more insightful wife uh, all the details in verse 14. Look with me there. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. He is living up to his name, which means foolish. You have to understand, importantly, in this passage, everyone seems to know the foolishness that Nabal has just engaged in, except Nabal. You see that? Even Nabal's own servant runs to the neck that controls the head, his wife, and says, Abigail, you got to do something about this. No one can talk to him. The man won't listen to reason. He is, after his name would suggest, foolish. And so she tells, or he tells uh, Abigail all that Nabal has done, all that's happened from David, and how he's rejected David. And so she has got to do something. Remember, what is Nabal's fault here? What is the problem? He has not just rejected David. We know that this book is compiled after David is already dead. Nabal has not just rejected David. He has rejected the line that David would come to. Everybody reading this is going, you're rejecting the Davidic line? This is the line that all Jews hold up as sacrosanct? This is a precious line? The king over all of Israel? You've rejected the king? Foolish indeed. He's rejected so much more than David. So this servant goes and says, he hasn't just rejected a beggar. He's rejected David, the chosen one of God. And so Abigail, in response, couldn't be any more different than her husband. So she packs up all kinds of things. She gets her servants and she tells them, go out ahead of me. I'm right behind you. We're going to ride out and we're going to try to intercept David as he most is assuredly going to come and kill my husband. Look at what happens in verse 23. We're going to go through this step by step. When Abigail saw David... She hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. 
What does that show? It shows that she's bowing in deference, recognizing David's kingship. As we go through this, think about what we just did in our worship service. We just had a prayer of confession where we came before the Lord and we confessed everything, all of our sin, right, before the Lord, anything that we were holding in our heart. I want you to look at Abigail's treatment of David and see if you don't see some parallels between the way, da- the way Abigail treats David and the way we come before the Lord in repentance. Look at this, verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. She recognizes the guilt that is faced by her husband, and she actually takes it all on her own shoulders. This is my fault. I should have done something about it. Now, we reading would go, no, it's not. But she's wise, and she's discerning, and she's coming before David, and she's taking the responsibility all on her own. She wants to speak for Nabal. Look at verse 25. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal, fool, is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So she's pleading with, with David for forgiveness. Don't, let, don't take this into account. Forgive. Verse 26, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What is she doing? She's actually praying, asking that, the, that David's enemies would also be avenged. Anybody who would oppose you, as my own foolish husband has done, anyone one that would oppose you, let them be just as he is. As you had intended to do to him, let them all fall in likewise. So let's look at verse 27. And now let this pre- uh, present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. What is she doing? She's offering restitution. Let me make amends for everything. This is repentance. She's saying, let me correct the wrongs that have been done and let me walk a different way for my family. Look at verse 28. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. She's now asking specifically for forgiveness and for ongoing protection for David. Look at verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She's asking for ongoing protection of David, not just ongoing protection, but shepherds would carry a little pouch beside where they would hold the stones. You're probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath. It was a pouch that would carry the stones, and they would take that pouch, and they would sling it out, and the stones would would fly from it and destroy whatever was in their way, whatever animals in their way. And he's saying, look, the Lord is going to protect you. He will sling stones out and will will take hold of any of your enemies that would ever oppose you. But then look at verse 30 and 31, and here we see the absolute wisdom of the plea that she gives before David. Look at this in verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince, that is leader, over Israel, 
My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt, with, has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. What is she saying to David here? Look, my husband was a fool. But being foolish doesn't necessarily deserve death. And the atrocity that he's committed against you is an atrocity and it's a sin, and I'm making restitution for it. But it's not worthy of the death penalty. And the last thing you want to do, David, is get into your position as king, as king over Israel with this on your conscience. Don't, don't make your kingdom that kind of kingdom. Don't, don't sit on the throne with that in your background. Don't let other people look at you as that kind of leader, because that's not you. That's not the kind of person you are. Don't let your leadership of this country begin with this kind of stain against your conscience, merely taking out your anger against this person. You remember back in 1 Samuel 19, Jonathan goes before Saul and he says, why would you hold David guilty like this of the death penalty when he's done nothing against you? And it says Saul listened to Jonathan, his son. He heard his advice and he listened to him. But he obviously didn't listen for long. You see, Abigail's petition, just like Jonathan's before him, Abigail's petition is, you don't want to become like Saul. There's a lot of wisdom in what Abigail is giving to David here. Essentially snapping her fingers and saying, wake up, this isn't you. That's Saul. This isn't you. Heed the words of wisdom. And don't, don't put this kind of stain on your kingdom. You see, what the Lord is doing as he works through Abigail is restraining David in his anger. He's rightfully offended. Nabal is not just offended him, he's offended the throne that God has established over Israel as David is rightful leader. But Abigail comes to him and says, this is not the way. This is not the kind of kingdom we want to establish here. See, each person in this story is proving to be exactly what the story promises they will be. Abigail is proving to be insightful and understanding because she cuts straight to the heart of the problem. She makes restitution. She does everything that she needs to do. She confesses the sin of her family. She owns sin that wasn't even her responsibility to own and makes all kinds of restitution for it. Nabal has no, outkicked his coverage does not begin to describe what Nabal's got in Abigail. And she proved to live up to everything that we, we thought she would be. But then she gets straight to the point and she says, in addition to all these things and the blood guilt that you'll bring upon your own head and on your kingdom, you'll be trying to establish salvation by your own hand. And that's a problem. You don't want to be seen doing that. Nabal, on his part, 
has proven to be a fool, not just because he rejects David, but as I said, he rejects the entire kingdom that God is setting up. He's not just rejected David. He's rejected David's whole line, which we all know where that eventually ends. In Jesus. But then David is also proving himself to be the Lord's anointed because even though he is angry, he trusts that God will deliver him. You know, as we, we think about how this text actually then applies to our current situation, I would venture a guess that there is more than one Nabal inside this room. Whom Christ Himself, through His Word, through people that preach His Gospel, have come to you time and again, begging you to repent and believe in Christ. And the question that exists for you, out in front of you, is why do you continue to reject? Why is it that the unbeliever continues to come into a church service and hear the Word preached, and yet in the end finds himself never taking the Lord's Supper Why is it that he continues to find himself rejecting the petition of the gospel to you to repent and believe? Why is that? See, being Nabal, rejecting the Christ figure that would come to you, is actually really common. And it transcends all the evidence that's available to you. Nabal has all the evidence. He knows exactly who David is. He knows who his father is. He knows what God has supposedly done for David in anointing him. He knows the stories of God going before him. He knows all of those things. But you see, Nabal is also ironically convinced that he's done all of this by his own hand. That all of the wealth that he's come into, this is all his own doing. He never pauses to think that you're not even in this land by your own hand. But I would submit that there are people, unbelievers, who sit in churches every single day, who hear the gospel preached, who never pause to think, why is it that I have the things that I have? Why is it that the gospel is coming to me now? Why is it that mercifully, Sunday after Sunday, someone is begging me to repent and believe? Why is it Sunday after Sunday the Bible is being opened in front of me? Never stop to think about it. Or maybe never stop to think, what happens next? What if I walk out of this room in just a few minutes and all of a sudden my breath is taken from me and my heart stops beating? What happens then when I walk out there? What happens when I open my eyes in death and I stand before a holy God and I've got to give an account of my life and there's no one to take defense for me? What happens then? See, we look at Nabal and we think, how could someone be so foolish? But perhaps you are being precisely that fool. There's another kind of foolishness that often beholds Christians that we take and and hold on to. And that is this self-deprecating foolishness. We've sinned so greatly That we refuse to come before the Lord because surely He is ashamed of me too. Now I have outsinned His grace. But that is also being a Nabal because that's not what the king has actually come to you asking. He hasn't come to you asking for you to be perfect, He hasn't come for you to be asking you to be flawless. He has actually come to you asking you to believe the gospel and trust 
that his righteousness is enough for you. That in spite of my foolishness, he has saved me. In spite of my absurdity, he has forgiven me. That all of my sins were in his future when he died, and he knew them all, and he died for them anyway. So don't be a fool. The challenge is, are you going to reject the God of your salvation? When the Abigail of the gospel is coming before you and presenting an alternative, are you going to heed the counsel and believe the gospel or not? So in the end, the Lord works salvation for David. Look at verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. You may notice a theme developing, as we said, as I said at the beginning, where in the chapter 24, David's heart was struck within him, and it led to conviction and repentance of sin. Here, Nabal's heart is struck within him, and it leads to death in his foolishness. While Saul is attempting to kill his enemy, David, God establishes what his kingdom will look like in David. And that's what you have to see is being established here in this passage. It's not just a story about what happened one time when David came to Nabal, David's men came to Nabal. It's also about a kingdom that God is establishing through this anointed king and what it actually looks like. What kind of kingdom do we have? You see, it turns out that the kind of kingdom that God is establishing is one where God reigns in righteousness. Where God holds all sin to account. Where He takes into account all foolishness. And He's the one that does the fighting. But it's also a kind of kingdom where no one that would call themselves the people of God can hold on to bitterness and pursue their enemies with revenge in their heart. Do you know how odd this story is? Take this story and bring it to the king of Babylon or to Assyria or to the king of the Philistines. And say, here David was presented with someone who, he is the heir apparent, someone who has rejected his authority and his, uh, his asking for some extra food. And what would each of those kings say? Just go kill the guy. Take it. In fact, in the, in the book of 1 Kings, we see Jezebel actually saying this to her husband. We just take it. Just kill him and take it. It's as simple as that. But you see what God is establishing here is that, no, we don't do that in this kingdom. That's not the way my kingdom operates. The people that are included in my kingdom don't operate with revenge in their heart. God's kingdom will be ruled by God, and those who wish to be a part of it will leave wrath and vengeance to Him. This is radically different than the rest of the world who seeks to take advantage of their political adversaries. You understand, even today, death by politics is the norm. Not in God's kingdom. You understand how radically different this notion is and what's happening in this passage? That David wouldn't go and kill this? But, but why is it important 
for David to just leave this beside? Is God actually saying to his people, you're always going to be taken advantage of. You're always going to get the short end of the stick. You are always going to draw the short straw. No. What he says in Isaiah 59, 18, According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment. Nahum 1, 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Time and again, what we're told is, is not you'll always get the short end of the stick. What we're told instead is that it's me that fights for you. That's what you're trusting. When you're burying all the things that have happened in your past and you're leaving them to God, it's not you saying, well, I'm just always going to be relegated to the short end of the stick. It's you saying, I trust that any fighting that needs to be done, any judgment that needs to be done, God is going to do it on my behalf. He's going to do the fighting for me. It's trust that you're giving. That's the reason you're commanded to do it. What does Paul say in Romans 12, 19? Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. David seems to be totally spared from doing, acting on any vengeful nature that he's got within him or any, anything like that. But he's not totally spared. We get this past the little end, at the very end here, where David takes on all these wives. And every time we get there, people always have natural questions like, what is going on with this, right? And I'm sure probably some of you are thinking, what, what in the world is happening? I think that the author is actually setting us up to watch David fall. I don't think, now remember, not everything that is stated in the Bible is recommended, all right? Just because it's in there, it's not recommended to you, all right? So before you go, hey, David did it, listen, it's not recommended. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 17 says this, talking about the king who will inevitably be there, this is Moses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And you see David actually doing that, and it is going to set up in 2 Samuel his decline, where it's going to be the worst mistake that ever came to him. Right now it's not told to you that way, but I think it is the author setting this up for you. So before you go, hey... David's, it seems like the Old Testament is recommending this, or you may be sharing the gospel with somebody, and they say to you, well, what about polygamy in the Old Testament? It seemed to be fine. Actually, it never turns out well, especially for the man involved in polygamy. Trust me on that one. We've seen that at the beginning of this book, and we see it, I think, at the end. But the point of all of this is that some of us in this room will have, and we will continually have, difficult times letting bitterness and anger and resentment and wrath and vengeance go. Sometimes we will come in Sunday after Sunday and we will seeping, seething with bitterness, we will be seething with anger and strife, and perhaps it's for very good reason. It is difficult to go into an office where you're sitting across from someone who is asking you for counsel, who's dealing with an abusive father in their past. It's an incredibly difficult position 
to tell them to let it go. And, and there's no way you can just say to them, you just got to let it go. But the reality is what God is asking of us is you, if you trust me, you need to know that vengeance is mine and I will repay. There's no sin that is not accounted for. But consider, if that's you, just consider what you're saying about the person that you're holding wrath and vengeance towards. If that person is a believer and a follower of Christ now, and maybe they've repented of their sin, but you still can't let it go, imagine what you would be saying about that person. I know the Lord forgives you, but I can't. And imagine if they're an unbeliever. They haven't repented of their sin. They continue in that same path. Imagine what you'd be saying. I know hell is reserved for you. Maybe now prison is reserved for you. And then hell, afterlife. But you need hell plus whatever I can give you. In both situations, in both scenarios, we set ourselves up as God. As the one whose justice system is higher than the God Almighty, who promises that vengeance is His and He will repay. You see, what's happening in the Gospel, when you become a child of God, what He's promising to you is that I will fight for you. Which is exactly what he does with David. That may not always come with the speed and accuracy that it comes for David. Where all of your adversaries are stricken dead with a heart attack. But you can bet, you can rest assured that it will come. See, what we often fail to see is that those who are our legitimate enemies are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. So Jesus, when He takes up cause with you, when you become His, He's saying, when they damage you, when they fight against you, they're fighting against me. So I'll do my fighting for you. How do we let bitterness and wrath and envy and anger go? Trust. You're never going to forget it. It's always going to be there unless by God's grace He just gives you amnesia towards it. That's not going to happen. Forgive and forget is not a reality that we live in. But you understand forgiveness means that there's trust. That anything that needs to be done about this situation, the Lord will do. Let's pray.